You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So just a couple weeks ago, on August 25th, as you guys know, Senator John McCain passed away at the age of 81. And, uh, and since that, that time, there have been, uh, b- before his body was laid to rest, there were several memorial services for him, paying tribute to his life, which was an amazing life. And just last Saturday, I had the chance to, to watch some of the eulogies that were given for him. And I just want to say a quick note here, if you've not had a chance to see those yet, I want to encourage you to go check those out. Um, I, I think that they represent something uh, very meaningful and important, and so I encourage you to check those out. And so as I was watching uh, and, and listening to these eulogies, uh, two different speakers um, talked about, mentioned, made mention of Senator McCain's favorite book called For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. I don't know if you've heard of that book or read that book. I've I never read the book. I've never heard of the book. But uh, one of the speakers recited a quote from this book, and I want to read it to you this morning. This is how the quote goes. Today is only one day in all the days that will ever be, but what will happen in all the other days that ever come can depend on what you do today. It kind of sounds like a really good fortune cookie, you know. Like it's a, it is a really good, simple quote. And, and what makes it good is that it's getting at this profound truth of causality in this world. Everything that is happening, you got to think with me here, everything that is happening right now in the present is connected to some cause that has happened in the past. And when we take that truth and we focus it in on our individual lives, it can make for some great conversation. Melissa and I love to remember the first time that we met. Um, I went to a different high school than she did, but on this particular night, I was at her high school's basketball game. And, and sometimes we just, we wandered together. Like, what if I didn't go to that basketball game that night? Or, or, or what if we, what if we didn't, didn't see each other during halftime? Like, what if we had not met that night? And just as I've asked those questions, we, we all could do this sort of thing, right? We all could do this sort of thing about all kinds of different things in our lives. And when we do, when we think about all the different possibilities out there, it can, it can kind of, it can be stressful a little bit. I think that it can, uh, we, we can be unsettled by how fragile the past can feel, all the what-ifs behind us. I want to just say, if you're, if you're thinking this way, I hope you are mentally thinking about all the what-ifs, I just want to say, the very fact that, that you are here this morning is a miracle. Here's the deal. There are all kinds, all kinds of details that bring us into this moment right now. And then of all the details, some of those details are weightier than others. Some moments in our past that have brought us to this moment are what we could call watershed moments. 
Watershed moments are those moments that, that really change things. They really alter the course of our lives. And if you think about your life, you can probably pinpoint right here on the spot. You could probably pinpoint three or four, maybe five significant watershed moments in your life, whether it's a choice we make or a way we respond or a blessing that just falls on our heads. We all have had, we all have had, and we all will have watershed moments that shape our future. And I say all that to say that's what's going on for Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. Last week, Pastor Joe kicked off part three of Genesis, and he did a run-through of where we've been the last two years. And so I just want to take a minute and give you an idea of where we're going here in year three. Uh, since chapter 12, we have been looking at the life of Abraham and his son Isaac. And now in part three, we have moved over to Isaac's son Jacob. Last week, beginning in chapter 27, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, are the big three patriarchs in the Bible. And a lot of airtime is given to Abraham, a little bit is given to Isaac, and then the most is given to Jacob. Jacob is basically the rest of Genesis, from chapter 27 all the way through chapter 50, aside from a, a Joseph intermission, the rest of this book, even Joseph, is all about Jacob and his house. And everything that we read about Jacob and his house in the rest of this book comes back to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28 is the chapter that every other day in Jacob's life depends upon. And I want to just give you three reasons for why that's the case. Right? This is the sermon outline. These are three things, three important things that we learn about Jacob in Genesis 28. Number one, Jacob is given an old blessing. Number two, Jacob has a clear adversary. Number three, Jacob is led by a gracious God. So old blessing, clear adversary, gracious God. These are the three things we learn about Jacob here, and there are some lessons, I think, for us. And so let's pray again, and then we'll get started. Father, this morning we, we confess that we need your help in life. We, we come here this morning with burdens heavier than we can bear, and a lot of times, if we're honest, we just don't know what to do. And so in this moment, as we come to your word, we need to hear from you. We want to hear from you, Father. And so we ask, teach us your ways and lead us in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, number one, Jacob is given an old blessing. If you have your Bible, look down there at Genesis 28, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. Now, as Pastor Joe mentioned last week, by this point here in chapter 28, Isaac has come around, and he has finally understood what Rebekah has understood this whole time, that Jacob was to receive the blessing, not Esau. And so chapter 28 opens here with Isaac blessing Jacob, but 
there's a little extra weight that we need to see here, and it has to do with the language that's being used. It's, it's identical to chapter 27, verse 1. In chapter 27, verse 1, we read that Isaac first called Esau with the intention of blessing him. And then here in chapter 28, it starts the same way. Except this, except this time, Isaac gets it right. This time, 28 verse 1 says that Isaac called Jacob to bless him. And so this just means for us, in chapter 28, we are now on the right track. We're headed in the right direction. And the blessing here also includes this directive. Isaac tells Jacob to move to this place called Padan Aram. Isaac tells Jacob to go there so that he could find a wife. Now, we've seen this place mentioned before in reference to Rebekah, but just in case we're not sure where this is, we're told twice, twice in five verses where this is located. In verse 2, Isaac explains that this is where Jacob will find the house of Bethuel, which is Rebekah's father. So this is Jacob's granddaddy on his mama's side. And when he goes there, he also is going to find Laban. Laban is his uncle, is Rebekah's brother. This is all said very plainly in verse 2. But then we're told it all over again in verse 5, which means if we see it twice here in five verses, this location matters. This is really important. We're supposed to know here where Jacob is going. And, of course, the main issue with why Jacob goes here is that Laban has daughters. And so Jacob needs to go to Padan Aram to visit and meet Laban's daughters, which means in one sense, if you want some contemporary understanding here, it's like Jacob is like the bachelor of ancient Mesopotamia, okay? And he is being sent to Padan Aram, also called Haran, to meet these women. So Jacob... He's, he's sent away by Isaac, and this, is a real, this trip's a really big deal. This place called Padanaram is also called Haran in the Bible, and it's a long ways from where Jacob is in chapter 28. Verse 10 in chapter 28 tells us that Jacob is in Beersheba, which is southeast in the land of Canaan, and uh, Padanaram, or Haran, is way northeast out of the land of Canaan in present-day Syria, which means this is a very long walk for Jacob. In fact, Haran is the place where Abraham is from. So if you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, Haran is the exact same place that God told Abraham to leave. So in Genesis 12, Abraham is blessed and told to leave Haran for the land of Canaan. And here in Genesis 28, Jacob is blessed and told to leave the land of Canaan for Haran, which means that Jacob is just retracing the steps of his grandfather, Abraham. And this is how Isaac blesses Jacob. Listen to verse 3. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Now, what we've already seen over the past two chapters is made crystal clear in these verses. 
Jacob is given the blessing of Abraham. That's what we've been anticipating this whole time. And now we know it without a shadow of a doubt, which means this was never about any old birthright. This, this was never about some run-of-the-mill blessing. This has been all about the blessing of Abraham. And now we see that it even goes deeper than that. If you notice there in verse 3, Isaac says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Now, when it comes to important phrases in the book of Genesis, the phrase be fruitful and multiply is near the top of that list. And so just quick question. Anyone remember where that shows up earlier in the book of Genesis? In Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God speaks these exact same words to Adam and Eve. So back before sin was in the world, back when everything was perfect, when God said everything was good, God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Then later in Genesis 12, God blessed Abraham. And here in Genesis 28, we see this mashup between what God has said to Adam and what God has said to Abraham. God's commission for all mankind and God's blessing to Abraham are now combined and they are handed to Jacob. This is a very old blessing. The blessing of Abraham that now belongs to Jacob includes God's original commission to Adam, which means this, this here literally goes back to the beginning of creation. This blessing here is as old as dirt. Almost literally, as old as dirt. And I think that this shows us something very important about the ways of God. It shows us something beautiful about the ways of God. It shows us that God knows what he is doing. God doesn't make mistakes. Now, of course, it doesn't feel that way in the moment. I'm guessing that for Jacob, and at least for us as the readers of this story, it seems like things are moving backwards here because Jacob has to go to Haran, which is where Abraham had moved from, right? That seems counterproductive. I mean, why, why can't Jacob just find someone? Why can't Isaac just find someone for Jacob to go in his place to Haran, find a wife for him, and bring her back? Because that's what happened for Isaac. It worked that way for Isaac. But then we remember, wait a second, Jacob is not just going to Haran to find a wife. He also is going to Haran because his brother Esau wants to kill him. So he's going to find a wife, and he's running for his life. And this whole thing is just a mess. This is a mess here. It seems chaotic and fragile. It seems crazy. But then here in verse 3, we get this little sneak peek into God's plan. We see that there's a single thread of continuity that reaches back to the very beginning. In the middle of all this confusion, simultaneous to this conflict, and to this inconvenience, God is actually working to fulfill his purpose through humanity, for humanity through Jacob. 
God's purpose for mankind is being fulfilled through this inconvenience of Jacob. Just a little heads up. That's like the theme of Genesis part three. We will say that again and again over the next two months. And if God is working through this conflict, if God is working through this inconvenience to fulfill a greater purpose, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. If God is doing this work through Jacob's circumstances, what does that say about the stuff we have going on in our lives? The stuff that we have. If God is doing this through Jacob, what is God doing with our circumstances? What does this say about God in our circumstances? It says very simply that God can handle it. God can handle whatever it is that you have going on. And here's a little prayer that I think we all can learn to pray. It's a very simple prayer. It's when we find ourselves maybe like Jacob here and things seem counterproductive and it seems like this doesn't make any sense. Here's a little prayer that I think we can pray. It goes like this. Father, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but I know you love me and I know you're sovereign and I know you can handle this. Just fill in the blank. God, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but I know that you love me. I know that you're sovereign. And I know that you can handle. God can handle it. Whatever it is you have going on, God can handle it. He gives here, Jacob is given here an old blessing. And God has it under control. So clear in Genesis 28. Second thing here we see is that Jacob has a clear adversary. And I just want to explain to you verses 6 to 9. We've already seen the conflict between Jacob and Esau that uh, is happening here in Genesis. It goes back to chapter 25. Verses 6 to 9 are here just as a way to, to show us, to remind us that the divide between these two brothers is only deepening. And it has to do with Esau's marriage decision. Verse 6 tells us that Esau has been looking on as Jacob is blessed and sent away. He knows, Esau knows that Isaac and Rebekah only want Jacob to take a wife from Rebekah's family in Haran. Jacob is not supposed to marry into the Canaanites, which is something that Esau has already done. And then verse 8 says that when Esau realizes this, he goes out and he marries into the family of Ishmael. And there are some questions here on this text as to what Esau's motives are. Some commentators say that Esau was bitter and he spitefully married into Ishmael's family. Other commentators say that Esau marries into Ishmael's family as a way to please his parents because at least they're not Canaanites. But we don't really know because the Bible doesn't really say. We're not exactly sure. But either way, whatever... Esau's motive is here, Esau is making a bad call. This is bad call Esau. All right. Thanks, Hannah. <laughs> That's because when Esau marries into Ishmael's family, he is just fortifying himself on the wrong side of God's blessings. 
Remember that a lot of Genesis has been the story of two brothers, different couples of brothers. And repeatedly we see God chooses one brother and not the other. It was not Cain, but Abel. It was not Ishmael, but Isaac. It was not Esau, but Jacob. And so when Esau here marries into Ishmael's family, he cements himself as part of the discarded line. And he joins the ranks of Israel's most notorious enemies. Because this marriage decision is the beginning of the Edomites and the Ishmaelites, who up to this present day stand in opposition to Israel. So in terms of the Bible's relevance. Now, in just a few chapters, in chapter 33, Jacob and Esau are going to meet again. And I'm excited about this. They're going to run into each other. And Pastor Joe is going to cover that chapter in a few weeks. And that chapter is loaded with meaning. It's a very important chapter. I can't wait to hear what Pastor Joe is going to show us there. But the main point here, the main point in verses 6 to 9, is just to show us that the divide between these two brothers has deepened. Jacob has received the blessing and promise, not Esau. Esau is not Jacob's worst adversary, but Esau definitely is a clear adversary, and we see this throughout the rest of the Bible, and we see this in history. Okay, that's the second thing. Here's the third thing. Jacob is led by a gracious God. A gracious God. Verse 10 shows us uh, when Jacob embarks on his journey. This is when he's hitting the road, starting out. He's obeyed his parents, uh, and he sets out on his travels, and then we see right away he comes to a certain place, and because it's night, he decides to camp out. And so as he's camping, as he's sleeping, in verse 12, he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees a ladder stretched between heaven and earth. And on the ladder, there are angels ascending and descending. And then God speaks to him in this dream. And right away, this should remind us of Genesis 15, when God spoke to Abraham in a vision. The same sort of thing is happening here for Jacob. Here's the parallel. After God first promised to bless Abraham in Genesis 12, God came to Abraham a second time and confirmed the promise by speaking directly to Abraham in a vision while he was sleeping. And here, after the promise of Abraham has been given to Jacob, God comes to Jacob and confirms the promise by speaking directly to him in a dream while he was sleeping. And what God is confirming to Jacob is the same threefold promise he gave to Abraham. Number one, I will give you this land of Canaan. Number two, I will give you great posterity. Your offspring will be as many as the dust of the earth. Number three, I will make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is the exact same thing that God told Abraham. And so we see here the similarities between Abraham and Jacob begin to stack up. In Abraham's vision, back in Genesis 15, God told him that his future descendants will be sojourners in a land not their own. He was talking about Egypt. And God says to Abraham there, I will bring you back to this promised land. And here in Jacob's dream, God tells him that although he is sojourning right now, although he is in exile on the way to Haran, God says to Jacob, I will bring you back 
to this promised land, just like he told Abraham. In the same way that Abraham gave a tenth of everything to the priest king Melchizedek, here Jacob vows to give a tenth of everything to God. And so again and again we see here that Jacob is just like Abraham, but this is not simply repeat. Jacob is not just trying to do everything that Abraham did so that God will bless him. Here in Genesis 28, Jacob himself encounters God. See, it's one thing to have Isaac extend Abraham's blessing to you. And it's another thing to have God speak that blessing to you straight to your face. And when it comes to the road that is set before Jacob, God knows what he needs. And so it's important for us to see what God is doing here. This whole story, this whole thing here really is less about Jacob and it's more about God. We learn here the kind of God that God is. This is the God who is faithful. This is the God who knows what Jacob needs, even if Jacob doesn't, because Jacob doesn't get this at first. Jacob is surprised by what happens here. Look at verse 16. Then Jacob, this is after the dream, Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So this moment here, this moment here in Genesis 28 is Jacob's watershed moment, and he didn't even see it coming. And I think that's really important for us in this narrative because in chapter 32, a few chapters later, in chapter 32, Jacob's name is going to be changed to Israel. And the name Israel literally means he strives with God. Jacob is a wrestler, see. Jacob is a striver and a deal maker. But here in this moment, here in Jacob the striver, here in Jacob's watershed moment, he doesn't strive with God, but God surprises him. And this kind of reminds us of Moses later in Exodus 33. Over in the book of Exodus, the next book over, when God has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, just like he told Jacob he would do, they are on their way to the promised land. Moses is leading the people. And Moses says to God, if your presence, he's, Moses is praying to God. He says, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's Exodus 33, verse 15. This is sort of like Moses trying to make a deal with God. Moses is saying, I will not go unless you go with me. And that's actually what God promises Jacob here in Genesis 28, 15. In verse 15, look what God says to Jacob. He says, behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land 
for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So Moses in Exodus 33 is striving for the same promise that God gave Jacob while he was sleeping. Which I think is meant to highlight for us that Jacob, Israel, the one who strives with God, received the greatest promise from God when he was not striving at all. Jacob is fast asleep here. The poor guy is so exhausted he's using a rock as a pillow. None of you have ever been that tired, right? God comes to this striver who is sleeping. God comes to the striver who is sleeping. He stretches out a ladder, and while he is sleeping, God unleashes grace on Jacob that he didn't even know to ask for. Because that's what it means to be led by a gracious God. It means that he gives us what we need the most, even if we understand it the least. It means that the greatest blessings in our lives, the greatest blessing in your life is because of who God is, not who you are, not what you've done. And I want you to know right now that is so true for you. Some of the earliest interpretations of this passage by Christians understood the ladder here, the flight of steps, the ladder. Early Christians understood this ladder to be a foreshadowing of Jesus. And that's mainly because of what Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus is talking to the disciple Nathaniel. And he alludes to Genesis 28, and this is what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So in Genesis 28, there's a ladder stretched from heaven to earth, and angels are ascending and descending on it. In John chapter 1, there's a person sent from heaven to earth, and the same angels are ascending and descending. Jesus is making a clear allusion to Genesis 28. And so I think the early Christian interpretation of this passage is right. Jesus is the better ladder. And if we think about our lives, if we all think about our stories, think about our lives, we know that none of us were striving for Jesus when we met him. Now, we might have been striving for something. We might have been striving for salvation. Maybe we were striving for God's favor. Maybe we were striving for God's acceptance. Maybe we just wanted a clear conscience. But whatever it was we were striving for, none of us, we're striving for Jesus, and yet wherever it was we were headed, whatever it was we were looking for, God stretched out to us his ladder. He sent to us his son, and he opened our eyes. Jesus is the grace of God unleashed in your life. 
Jesus is the blessings of God breaking upon your head. Jesus is the presence of God. He is the house of God at work in you right now by his spirit. In Jesus, all the promises of God to you find their fulfillment. And Jesus is just given to you. You can't earn him. We don't strive for Jesus. We can't earn him. We can't strive for him. Jesus is only given to us. And so do we receive him? It's, just that, it's that simple. We, we can't strive and earn Jesus. He is given to us. We might as well be asleep or dead in our sins. And God comes to us when we didn't know what to ask for. God comes to us and he gives us Jesus. So do you receive him? Will you, will you have him? Here in Genesis 28, this moment is so significant for Jacob that when he wakes up in the morning, he takes the rock that he used for a pillow and he sets it up as a monument, and he calls this place Bethel. But he sets up this pillow, this pillar now, a pillar, as a monument because he wants to remember this. Jacob wants to remember this watershed moment, and he actually comes back to this place in chapter 35. He refers back to this place in chapter 48, which is a very important chapter. This was Jacob's watershed moment that he never wants to forget. And that's what this table is for us. This table, the bread and cup of this table symbolize for us the body and blood of Jesus that have been given for us. And so if you have received Jesus by faith, this table is set up here every week for you to remember him. When we come to this table, we come to the table to remember what Jesus has done for us and to remember that we have received him. And so it's important how we do this. When we serve these elements, we're not striving for this bread. We're not striving for this cup. The bread and the cup are handed to you, literally handed to you. We hand it to you. God hands it to us. And we take it. Church, this morning, receive Jesus. Have him. Receive him. Receive the body of Jesus broken for you. Receive the blood of Jesus shed for you. This morning, church, receive Jesus who has been given to you given to you. Receive him. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we thank you. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your grace in our past. And thank you for your grace that's to come in the future. And also, Father, we thank you we thank you, Son. We thank you, Spirit, for your grace that is ours right now in this moment. Your grace that is ours right now. 
This morning, Lord Jesus, as we gather, we have gathered to worship you. And so we do. We worship you. And in this moment, Lord Jesus, we receive you. Jesus. Jesus, right now. We receive you. Amen. 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 So we're going to serve the bread first. And uh, you can just take it, hold on to it. I'll come back up and we will eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.